everyone wants something bigger, something magnificent, but the world outside our door is so dreadfully dull. The world does not live up to our expectations. Episode three, poetry is autistic. Welcome to the Autistic Culture Podcast. Each episode, we dive deep into autistic contributions to society and culture by introducing you to some of the world's most famous and successful autistics in history. Before we get started, a quick disclaimer on how we use the word autistic. The purpose of this show is not to diagnose the people or characters we discuss as autistic. While some may have announced being autistic, what we're really sharing here is our observation of what is representative of autistic culture. It can sometimes be difficult for autistic people to celebrate our natural tendencies and traits due to the perception of autism as a disorder that needs to be fixed, a long history of damaging medical interventions to get autistics to fit in with mainstream culture, and protective masking skills many of us have developed to try to stay safe. Whether you are autistic or just love someone who is, your hosts, Dr. Angela Loria, the linguistic autistic. And licensed psychological practitioner, Matt Lowry, welcome you to take this time to be fully immersed in the language, values, traditions, norms, and identity of Autistica. back and Matt yes you know I am the linguistic autistic and for many years when we talked about autism and thought that it was mostly boys and men who had it even some of the early assessment tools I know like when I did my autism assessment um there were a lot of questions about first of all trains a lot of questions about trains (laughs) and then but just in general like stem things mechanics science technology and so I think for like a long time there was this thought that autism was associated with stem but there's Mm -hmm. actually a lot of pretty magical literary stuff the arts also have uh, their autistic culture aspects. And I think that's because monotropism to me is the theory that underrides all of autistic culture. So whether you're obsessed with poetry, which is what we're going to talk about today, or trains, it's it's the deep dive, it's the obsession, right? That's like really what's autistic, not whether you're into, I don't know, cultures or something. And that's the thing, because due to our neurology, we don't have any choice except to be monotropic because uh, our 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 brains are hyper connected. That's the one universal thing across all autistic people. And when we find something that we're really into, we are really, really into it. Hence podcasting because we seek out novelty we seek out data we want to know everything that there is to know and when we have an interest we seek it from every available source which is why we are a fan of this medium because if we can pick up this information we will if we can live this information we will Mm. and whereas you know, researchers for the longest time thought this was a young white cisgender boy thing. And young white cisgender boys tended to go for trains and science and what have you. Uh, It's been going on for centuries, especially in a literary sense, because in literally every every aspect of human society, uh, there's something to be fascinated about, whether it's trains or ponies or poetry, because uh, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing obsessively, repeatedly, 24-7. Yes, I I agree. Uh, there is a novelist named Patrick Jasper Lee, and this is he was writing about how hard it is for literary agents who uh, many literary agents for poets and novelists 
end up their clients, the really good writers are autistic. And now the agents who tend to be social butterfly, very neurotypical types, wheeling and dealing contracts and doing lunches and having your people call my people, uh, which just so you know, autistics don't have your people call my people, we, we text. We don't need the phone call, thanks. Um, But uh, Patrick Jasper Lee was trying to explain to literary agents, first of all, why it's worth it to deal with autistic clients and why your clients might not act like you are expecting them to as a neurotypical. So he said, there is no getting away from the fact that it takes an obsessive nature and a good deal of self-discipline, which many on the spectrum can summon without a problem, to produce extraordinary creative works. And that, to me, is what I want to explore today as an aspect of autistic culture. And uh, I have extraordinary creative works from a female poet who we are going to deep dive into. So uh, I know you, I know you, you're, you get busy with the trains and the dinosaurs and the science and math, but have you been As too always. busy to guess which famous female poet from history might be autistic? Do you know who I might be talking to you? If I had to guess, I would say that maybe Emily Dickinson. Maybe. Let's see. We're going to let people guess. I'm going to have you read a poem and then we'll have everyone guess who this autistic poet is. So I'm going to send over. This is one of my favorites. So hit us with it, Matt. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard and sore must be the storm. That could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea, yet never in extremity it asked a crumb of me. Oh, it's one of my favorite things about hope. It never asked a crumb of me. And you got it right, Emily Dickinson. Is that because you're watching Dickinson on Apple Plus? Uh, I am a big fan of... Uh, finding our people anywhere, any when, anyhow. And a lot of contributions have been made by, uh, especially like Emily Dickinson. Uh, I really believe that Mary Shelley is probably one of us. Ooh. But there are a lot of uh, famous people out there that have made extraordinarily huge works. Uh, Anne of Green Gables is very autistic coded. Uh, mm. So, but there are a lot of other people that uh, fly under the radar, but strike me as autistic. But why does she strike you as autistic? Oh, that's what we're going to talk about today. Although now I'm planning a trip to Prince Edward Island so we can do a remote Anne of Green Gables episode. I'm ready for it. (laughs) Okay, but we are talking today about my girl, Emily Dickinson. And um, I think in the Apple Plus show, like they don't talk about her being autistic. But if you know some of this, if you haven't watched it yet, watch it after you listen to this episode because you can see how they got it in there. I think the actress playing her at least was briefed on some of the reasons why historians think Emily Dickinson was autistic. So the first one that we started with is monotropism. Now, at the time, they definitely didn't say, hey, Emily is really monotropic about this poetry stuff. They were like, how come this girl never leaves her room? All she wants to do is read poetry or write poetry. She started writing poetry when she was just a teenager in the 1800s, and she wrote 1,800-plus poems, like (laughs) literally hundreds and hundreds of poems. How many out of those 1,800 poems do you think she published while she was alive? I can't even begin to imagine. Ten. Ten. She was, she was still working on the other seventeen hundred and ninety. They needed a little, well, little polish. Yeah, you, you got to polish it until it's perfect. You got, you got, you got to polish it up. So most of her poems were published after she died. And now 
Here's an interesting thing. Poetry, especially if you're only going to publish 10 of them, is not going to be a well-compensated career. And as we're going to talk about later, uh, Emily also didn't want to get married, wasn't going for the MRS degree. And so she, like many autistic people, did not have a standard full-time job. And what she did do that she was excellent at, she wasn't really compensated for in her lifetime. And I think that's true with a lot of people who have a special interest that they haven't found a way to monetize yet. Exactly. And if you can monetize your special interest, that's awesome. See Temple Grandin for details. Amazing. Um, but if you can't, like if you're a poet in the 1800s that's only willing to po- to publish 10 poems anyway, um, you got to have some pretty good masking skills. So I we're going to talk also about her masking. Her dad was a politician. So she stayed in her family house her whole life and she never worked. So basically her dad was taking care of her her whole life. He was a politician. He was a lawyer. He was also the treasurer of Amherst University. And this is, uh, we're in like Salem witch trial days here. So this is high Calvinism. It's a very religious society. And Emily has to find a way to stay in her house. So it's this balance with her dad of doing stuff that really pissed him off, like publishing poems, which she was under threat. If she published, he was going to kick her out of his house, Um, but also writing poems. So he had this amazing library she would sneak into and read his books. There would be seminars at Amherst University that she would sneak into. He'd be talking about these who these scholars were that were coming and she would like sneak in and go to all these things. So she was always in a fight with her dad, but also her dad was the access to the library she wanted, the people she wanted, the information she wanted. So she She had information hunger. Yes. Yeah. And like, can you imagine like giving up your library? If you like, there's an amazing library in your house, you can't lose access to that. So she would she would get a book from her dad's library and she did the same thing I do which is she would I always have to read a book in one setting sometimes one yeah. setting is 12 hours and doesn't include showering or leaving my couch but because you get in the zone that's the way it works we have autistic inertia we have to get in the zone and stay in the zone I love that autistic inertia how else tell us a little more about that one because Emily had it let me tell you oh okay so this is the thing again due to the monotropic mindset when we find something that is appealing we have to dive deeply and fully into it and so this researcher uh Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi an Indian researcher in the 1970s pioneered the concept of flow with a capital F and unknown Knowingly, he uh, he uh, before autism was an official diagnosis, he pinpointed these criteria of what it takes to be in an autistic mindset, which is like high uh, intrinsic motivation, low egocentrism, uh, essentially pursuing this task for the sake of perfecting and pursuing the task. So basically, he had this theory that these types of people these autistic people go into this flow state where our brains switch over from alpha waves to theta waves. And we are in this meditative, almost trance where the rest of the world is completely tuned out and we can get into this trance for hours. And whether it's reading or playing video games or sculpting or drawing or whatever it is that feeds this passion for us, if we are in the zone, we are healing and it's, it's almost physically painful to knock us out of it. So therefore, a lot of uh, menial stuff like, you know, eating, sleeping, brushing your teeth falls to the wayside. And we just don't do those things because our brains are in this state of very, very intense meditation. And it's essentially a transcendental state, a state of Zen. And we need that to be healthy autistic people. 
This is so interesting. I actually, one, one of the reasons I write books so quickly and why I've written so many books is I obviously go into a flow state when I'm writing, but I, I teach that to my authors. So I, I have a process for getting into flow, which like includes get all those, um, get all those chores. Chores were a big issue for Emily. We're going to talk about that. But um, so I do an event called Three Days to Done. I'm actually doing one uh, this weekend. So you come and spend three days with me. I sit next to you. I'm going to make you and your son do this too, by the way. Um, <laughs> and we write your whole book in three days. So oh, yeah. there is like, I make my husband bring us food so that we actually stop to eat. <laughs> Although the last one I did, we just forgot for a day. But we just think about nothing else. And I just find it so much easier to write a book in three days than to actually write a book over a year because you get so distracted and all your ideas change. But if you can yes. set the conditions to be in a flow state, writing a book is actually really fast. And so there's like pre-work that I do to be ready. We get the, like, I get your favorite candle scent. I get your favorite food. Like every single thing is taken care of. So all you have to do is write. And Emily did this for herself. All she wanted to do was write poems. And so she would read and she would write, but she would skip her chores, which the whole like cost of living at her parents' house for her whole life and the cost of never getting a job and the cost of not getting married was she had to do all these chores. There were a lot of chores. It was the 1800s. And Emily was like hard no on that. She messed up every single time. She would hide on the second floor. And one of the big chores, which I didn't know this, but one, it makes perfect sense. One of the big chores, especially when you have a fancy pants family like she did, was, was visiting. It was house calls. Visiting. Yeah. So every single day, one of your chores, you would have to like make bread every day. You would have to get the eggs from the chickens every day. You would have to pump water from the well every day. And you had to go make visits. And there were people, the fancy pants people at your level, people you wanted, your dad wanted to vote for you for, you know, they wanted their husbands to vote for them. You would have to go visit those families. And it was a, it was considered a household chore. And can you imagine like the social anxiety? All you want to do is read. You're in the middle of a great book and you have to go see some fake ass people and smile and drink tea or whatever they were drinking. I think it was. That seems largely like autistic torture because (sighs) leaving the sanctity of a well-stocked library to go make small talk. Yeah, literally. Oh my God. Literally. So she... She wrote this letter to one of her best friends from school and she signed it. God keep me from what they call households. So she's like, I do not want to run a household like for the love of God. And it was a main thing that she was writing about. She was born in 1830. In the 1850s, almost all her letters were about her dislike of domestic chores, her frustration with the like constraint of having to like go take the horse and cart to visit all the neighbors and be part of the hoi polloi. She actually didn't mind baking bread. She liked the garden. Um, but of course. she went on a boycott of popping around to see the people with the high social standings, which, of course, her dad, her dad was like super high up in the Whig party. I think he ran for Congress or he ran for something. Um, and he was like, you're losing me votes. They think you're weird. Like everyone talks about me as the weird daughter. She's very strange. How do we know she's strange? She doesn't like to sit around and drink tea and eat biscuits. Again, a, a very colonial, uh, the, the uh, neurotypical mindset. It's that is incredibly disappointing. Like who would not who would not like that small talk for hours? Seriously. Oh, <laughs> oh my, my God. God. 
That's and again with the monotropism. This is a big thing that I talk about with like everybody because we need our libraries, we need our gardens, we need our beasts. Everybody has a collection of books, a collection of plants, a collection of beasts, and a mini uh, 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 museum. And this is the way that we live. We don't live based on banal small talk. It's no. God no. that kills Even us. Even if it's going to get my dad a vote. We love sharing stories of autistic culture. And if you are seeing yourself in any of these stories and you're wondering if maybe you're one of us or maybe you're already diagnosed or self-diagnosed and you want to know if Matt can help you live your life better and be more authentically autistic, check out his website at mattlowerylpp.com. That's Matt, M-A-T-T, Lowry, L-O-W-R-Y. And then that L-P-P, it stands for Licensed Psychological Practitioner. So head on over to mattlowrylpp.com and learn more about working with my buddy, Matt. So this is where I want to talk about masking, but also Ooh. some other pathologized symptoms. So Emily now suddenly, when it comes to visiting hours, has a stomach ache. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Emily had IBS. She was she always had to go to the bathroom. And so she's like, can't go visiting, gotta poop. And uh, like, here's my question to you, because obviously mm -hmm. gastro issues often show up with autism, but I have Very. like this chicken or egg syndrome. It's like, I'm not saying she was faking the stomach ache. I'm just like, listen, small talk for hours gives me a stomach ache too. I got you, girl. So is that like her kind of smart masking? Because people are less likely to be mad if she's not there because she's got a stomach ache than if she's not there because she hates small talk and people being fake. It could be, but this is also incredibly common for people all over just because that's how we process emotions. Because neurotypical people feel emotions. Uh, neurotypical people have a physiological response throughout their body that they clearly recognize, identify, and process as emotions. We, on the other hand, cognitively process emotions. So when things come up, uh, we say, oh, I don't like that. Uh, how do you feel about it? I don't know. But the way that we experience this is through headaches and through gastrointestinal distress, which is incredibly common, which is a big reason why a lot of school teachers don't see kids being anxious at school because they just need to go to the bathroom a lot. And this is an incredibly common thing, especially for autistic girls. Mm. So, I mean, I think it's kind of brilliant of our bodies. Like there, there's the social anxiety piece, which if I was reading a great book and then my mom said, you got to go be social with the neighbors you don't like. Ooh. Uh, that's going to give me social anxiety. Like, I don't know if oh, I yes. have social anxiety, but I'm going to have it now because you're pulling me away. It's like I'm in the middle of a fork full of chocolate cake and you're yeah. literally pulling the cake out of my hands. Yeah, it's going to make me a little anxious. And yeah. then if my body's reaction is a migraine or a stomach ache, I kind of think my body's brilliant. You just got me out of... I can go back to my book. You you just got yeah. me out of that social engagement. Exactly. And that's a big thing because again, neurotypical people don't don't seem to understand, ah yes, this is not the way that I interact with people, but they do understand I got the poops. Right. And I I just think like what a brilliant way that Emily learned to take care of herself and set boundaries because eventually she just said, don't ever ask me to come to these things again. I will awesome. be sick. Everyone knew. Now they were worried she was sickly. They always thought she was going to die. Everyone was on the <laughs> death watch because she just like wasn't well, like, oh, they have that ill child. But, and I'm not saying she felt great. Like, I don't know. She died at 56. That seems... I don't know. She wrote 1800 poems. Listen, it was a good life. But wow. um, yeah, but I 
if I if you gave me the choice between like having a stomach ache and a headache and being home alone with my books or having to socialize with those people, like I think she won. Yeah. So from a autistic culture, to me that looks like, if not healthy boundaries, at least better boundaries, boundaries that take care of yourself, and our systems like sometimes make it essential for us to take care of what we could talk about autistic meltdowns here. I'm sure she had one. I didn't find evidence of that in the research, but she just, it's a no. I know it's a small talk is just a no for me. I'm always going to get out of it because it's a no. And so I do think that's like modeling boundaries. I feel like neurotypical people can fake it better than I can. I, well, that's another thing because due to our neurology, everything is intense for us. They, they, they have this. Okay. So one thing that I talk about with people when it comes to the whole small talk is that we, we, we can't do that because it, it is incredibly grating in order to come up with an exchange of nothing. Uh, again, I think that Jerry Seinfeld would appreciate all this, but neurotypical small talk is essentially echolocation where two people make face noises at each other to ensure that the other person is human. And then uh, an establishment of hierarchy because neurotypicals love that. We need substance. We need to be able to communicate our passions with people. We need to communicate our interests. We need to communicate uh, uh, for Emily I'm guessing that she preferred to talk about poetry and books and things that were important rather than, I don't know, who you're going to vote for. Right. Or not even, I think they were talking about tea and crumpets because they were like polite ladies, right? So you would talk about, oh, the tea is lovely. And I think that means I'm going to vote for your father. I'm going to tell my husband to vote for your father. That's horrifying. Yeah, it's literally a nightmare. So... One way or another, it can be very painful. And obviously, we have very high rates of suicide. And Emily Dickinson was suicidal at many points, probably for a lot of these reasons. But it's like one way or another, I'm not doing this. This doesn't work for me. I'm not doing it. It's intolerable. It's intolerable. Yeah, I I had a uh, I had a life coach and I was talking about a romantic partner and how I didn't like their family. And I was like, I don't want to go there for Christmas. And my coach was telling me, but do you love your partner? And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, well, if you love your partner, you'll just go and you'll just tolerate it. And Ah. so I, I did. I did. And I was like more miserable. And then I was like not very nice to them, which made my partner mad at me. And then, like, I ruined the holidays for everyone, but mostly for me. I don't know. Like, it was like, I, I can't just do it. I, you will be, everyone will be happier if I stay home and read a book. Y'all enjoy right. Christmas. I'm going to be sending love right from my couch. Got this you. is a thing that I don't understand about neurotypical culture because, because it's based largely on colonialism, white supremacy, puritanism, and all this stuff. There's this element of, have you tried just suffering? Because it, <laughs> I don't understand where the, the the merit badge comes in from how much suffering you're able to but handle. See, I don't think it's actually hard for them. It must not be. No, now that I'm well, thinking, like they're not wired for they. Uh, again, brain scans show that neurotypicals tune out ninety eight percent of all sensory data that we don't. Uh, which is why we can hear electricity and lights and we can hear the cars outside, why we get overwhelmed by the feeling of irregular socks, all this stuff. So when you're sitting around making small talk with people, you can literally feel your skin crawling and time passing and the decaying of your body as you talk about the finery of crumpets. Yes, exactly. (laughs) It it literally kills us. Yeah, and... The opposite, right? Because there is sensory joy. And oh, yes. So Emily found, I do not, by the way, but Emily found sensory joy in nature. So one of the reasons she loved gardening is she loved being in nature. And she got a lot of sensory joy from her brother's wife. So <laughs> a lot. I'm, I'm going to have you read something in a minute. But uh, her brother's wife was actually her friend, 
first, wink, wink, and they had to find a way to be together. But her friend Susan, Susan Gilbert, did, came from kind of a poor family and her they got, I don't know, consumption or something. So she really needed to get married to pay the bills. So Emily and Susan were like, how can we be together? Because you're never going to have a job and you live with your parents. I got to marry some guy. And so they come up with Austin, Emily's brother, and her, Emily's parents bought Austin and Susan the house across the street. Woohoo! That That's some planning. Well done, right? You go, girl. Yeah. So there was a lot of sensory joy in the woods. They would take long <laughs> walks. They would exchange books. They would sit outside and read poetry to each other. And they wrote love letters to each other. In one of them, Emily said, uh, we are the only poets and everyone else is prose. I like that. that. It's so beautiful. Two decades into their relationship, there's so many love letters. They're so good. If you want some sexy time reading, um, but like you got to go find the love letters. We'll put a link uh, in the show notes, but the love letters between Emily and Susan, uh, this is one snippet. Can you read this one, Matt? To own a Susan of my own is of itself a bliss. Whatever realm I forfeit, Lord, continue me in this. <sighs> that's a good one. I'll, yeah, that that says a lot. She she really, really wanted her in in every way. 20 years. We are wow. poetry. Everyone else is prose. It went on even longer than that, but such a great solution they came up with. There there were some they they were in love their whole lives, but obviously at some point Susan had to have kids cuz you know, it wouldn't look good at the socials. And uh I do think Susan was neurotypical. She was very into the whole like mom and church thing. She ended up joining the church but her their love continued throughout their lifetime and being queer uh finding creative ways of expressing our love is a big part of autistic culture I don't think being autistic makes you queer but it somehow seems to like open up the idea to more people where why do you think this is well, okay, so the statistics are that autistic people are six times more likely to identify as LBGTQIA+, and three times more likely to identify as trans. And the theory behind it is that's the roughly natural rate of this happening in the entire human population. But because we autistic people, we have to be ourselves. Uh, I mean, we can mask, but we suffer through it. Uh, whereas neurotypical people may find this absolute need to conform no matter what. And again, have you tried just suffering? Right. So we autistic people, when we come to this conclusion and say, oh, yes, this is intolerable. We also say, oh, I can't mask in that area either i must be myself that's our girl that's our girl when autistic people find a special interest they go deep and have a lot of knowledge even if they don't have that formal education background to go with it if you want to capture your spin in a book check out angela's work at differencepress.com differencepress.com and find out more about becoming an author and establishing your credibility with a book so listen to this. In her love letters, but also in her other writing, when Emily would talk about her childhood, she called it her boyhood. Ooh. And when she would sign letters to her cousins, she would sign them as Brother Emily. And she would call wow. herself a boy, a prince, an earl, or a duke. So... She and then she wrote this one. I'm going to have you read this, too, because I think she's a uh, maybe. Well, you read it. Fascinating. <clears throat> Amputate my freckled bosom. Make me bearded like a man. Right. At least wow. non-binary. We got some gender fluidity in the house. This was not like she wrote about it once. There's hundreds and hundreds of references to her recasting herself in stories as the man. Now, some of that could have been like 
masking because she can't write about her lesbian love affair. But when I read Make Me Bearded Like a Man, I'm like, um, pretty sure she's gender non-binary or something. Yeah, that, that, that leans very heavily into a trans identity. Right. In 1850. Wow. Let's go. That's impressive. And, like, just think about how she had to balance all this. Like, no money, 10 poems published, no way to support herself. And I'm going to write shit like make me bearded like a man and not lose my house. Like, she was a juggling master. They say that we're, like, not good at navigating social situations. Uh, I'm going to beg to differ here. She lived her gender fluidity in the 1850s. I can't even begin to imagine because I know how hard that is for people these days. And back then, again, in the contemporary of the Salem witch trials. Uh So, yeah, er everything about that would scream in the day. Uh, witchcraft and Kill burning this girl. and such. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Everyone in her family converted to Calvinism. You had to make this was a very public show. Um, even her brother, even Susan. And this was like the revival tense. Uh, there there was like at the school, they, they split the girls into people who had converted, people who were thinking of converting. And then there was this group called Without Hope. Now, in a lot wow. of the records, it says Emily Dickinson was the only person in her school in the Without Hope group. And then at the end of the year, they sent her home. There's like, there's no hope. But I did find one source that said there were 30 girls in the class that were in the Without Hope. Um, and of course, we started this with Hope is a Thing with Feathers, right? And doesn't ask Indeed. a crumb of me. So Hope was a big term that meant hope you can be saved and emily announces at the school i'm a pagan i like like that really girl and so she only made it one year she went to mount holyoke but she only went for one year and they're like we don't know about the pagan maybe this isn't for her wow that's fantastic yeah So, but she had to like, it's weird. She would come out and say things like when they made them stand up, like you had to in church stand up and say, have you been converted? Are you thinking of converting or is there no hope? Which is like, you know, very dangerous. She wasn't willing to lie. But she always, her mantra was tell the truth, but tell it with a slant. And so <laughs> that it, defines masking. Fantastic. I, I know. I love how creative she was. So yes. she said there was no hope, but then she would say, but I wish I had hope. I would love. Wow. And I remember saying this, like I remember listening to Christian music. I think it was like maybe Amy, who's the baby, baby. I'm taking by. She's famous. Amy. Grant. That's some 80s. Yes. Yeah, it's like 80s, Amy Grant. Yep. And I was like, I want to listen to the Christian music. Like, I wish I could, but it would be so delightful. You just read a book. It gives you the rules. You follow the rules. You go to heaven. You get to believe in heaven. And like, I knew I couldn't believe in it because it was such horseshit. But I really, it would be so delightful. It seems so easy for everyone who believes. And so she would talk about how she was tempted to believe, as am I. Like, I am tempted to believe. I'm not fucking going to, but I am tempted to. And that's the thing about the autistic brain, because if you have a clearly defined set of rules, do this, do that, that that appeals to our logical mindset of saying, ah, yes, I want to achieve this goal. How do I achieve that? This, this, and this. Ah, perfect. I don't have to worry about that anymore. Moving on. Right. And it helps if you're super smart, which she was like IQ of 160 smart, right? Like super smart. So she would write these poems that she had this whole would they or won't they, will they, won't they, is she, isn't she. She would write poems about the savior and this is a little excerpt from one of them i'm gonna have you read but you get to guess here who the savior is she's referring to they all thought it was god but 
I'll see what you think. Give this, <laughs> give this one a read. <clears throat> Escape is such a thankful word. I often in the night consider it unto myself, no spectacle in sight. Tis not to sight the Savior, it is to be the saved. And that is why I lay my head upon this trusty word. Writing. That's was interesting. Her yeah. Yeah. Writing the word. The Ooh, word. Oh, <laughs> See oh, what she did there? Oh, oh, that is good. Oh, I like that. Seriously? Oh, I want oh, to that be is her fun. friend. It is oh, good so for her. Fun. Ooh. She ah, worshiping the word as as a writer. Oh, oh, that's good. The word. We got oh, you. Girl. I like that. She like managed to stay stay alive. So she said, um, like when people asked her, what do you think is the meaning of life? She said it was to dare to do strange things, bold things. Do strange things and bold things. But she really never left her house. no one has done before. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing, because I, I have this conversation with people all the time. And again, I only do therapy with autistic people. And the therapy that we do is not to be less autistic. It's to be as authentic as humanly possible. And so many people stay at home in a sort of autistic version of agoraphobia because everyone wants something bigger, something magnificent. But the world outside our door is so dreadfully dull. The world does not live up to our expectations. And this is a big thing. She wants to live a bold life. She wants to potentially have a relationship with a woman. Emily might wanted to have been a man. And all of these things are out of reach to someone who was born female in the dark ages. Yeah. But like, it's interesting because obviously the way the ABA goes about trying to change autistic people is super like horrible and damaging and creates suicide, like creates a lot of problems. But that doesn't mean that many of us don't have challenging circumstances where we do have to adapt and get our needs met in a largely neurotypical world. And that part of autistic culture is like, I'm pretty good at solving nonlinear thinking puzzles Because like, that's our lives. Like, how do I navigate? I want a job. I want to go to college. I want to do this thing. I'm going to have to deal with neurotypical people. I don't want to be changed, but also I don't necessarily want to be fired or in Emily's case, forced to marry somebody or kicked out of my house. So there's a lot of creative problem solving that is in our culture. Uh, that is exactly what we will be talking about in the episode about industrial light and magic, because that is the way of the autistic people. We we are outside the box thinkers because that's how our brains are wired. We are non-traditional because tradition was built without ever, you know, asking us. Yeah. So, yeah, we need yeah. to new we need to do new and inventive and miraculous things. Okay, well, one of Emily's other inventive and miraculous things is she was like a hell no to the popular fashion. So part of that was since she wasn't doing visiting and calling hours and she was mostly at home, um, she made her own clothes and she didn't have to like wear a corset, wasn't going to wear a corset. She basically wore a house dress. It was called a wrapper. And it was white cotton with white mother of pearl buttons. Some women would use something like this around the house to do garment, to do like chores around the house. But also because she liked to um, tumble around in the woods with Susan, uh, the Uh white made it super easy to bleach. She could get the stains out because she was always like in the woods doing stuff, reading in the woods. So she would bleach her white garments and she just lived in these pure white dresses. She just had these white dresses. It was all she wore. She had a uniform and it became like her signature thing. People have written a lot about it. I'm going to put something in the show notes so you can actually see her white dresses. They look kind of like a nightgown. 
But that was it. She just wore one thing. It was all cotton. It was all white. It was easy to wash. It was always comfortable. She always knew what she was wearing. And screw mainstream fashion. That is autistic fashion right there. Comfortable and practical. Yep. Love it. Love it. So she, like, listen, if you have important poems to write, you cannot be picking out clothes. There are like brain cells that get spent picking out clothes. You could be reading or writing during that time or doing whatever your special interest is. So we keep it, we keep it easy on the clothes. We like make it easy on ourselves because we have some other things to do. Um, but because she was also obsessed with death, she would write a lot about death. Um, people always talked about her death. They speculated about her death. And so wearing all white did a couple things. First of all, it made her seem weirder, which was like this protection. It was, it was like, uh, um, like otherworldly, like she was a ghostly figure, like she had already died almost. But also, we she switched into her all white autistic uh, uniform when she was thirty. And it was official. They were going to stop trying to marry her off. Everybody knew she was never getting married. So again, trying to protect herself with all the Christian stuff, it was considered like she was the bride of God. It was like uh, she was like fascinating little elf. She was like little tiny elfin creature. And she was dedicating her purity, her essence and her sexy sexual romps with her sister-in-law in the woods all to Jesus. Like I'm a, I'm a wow. dress up for Jesus. So that is part of how she survived. They saw her as chaste because she wore all white. And they saw her poems about the Savior, you know, the word is the Savior, as like biblical. Wow. And they just didn't catch on. <laughs> that is fascinating. She's hiding in plain sight out in the open. And yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. So she, um, so she managed to do it. So, uh, like I said, her credo was tell the truth, but tell it at a, at a slant. And I think if we were, if we were looking at this through like the DSM lens or through a medical lens, or even the way neurotypical people looked at her, it was like, here's a weird eccentric girl with social problems. She can't keep friends. She's rude. She doesn't show up to our parties. She's like no shows. She's like got IBS and some medical stuff. She's definitely got oppositional defiance disorder. Like, please just raise your hand. Or what do they call it now? There's some other name for it, right? P PDA, PDC. Oh, oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it, it can be either pathological demand avoidance, which is the bad way, yeah. or persistent yeah. demand for autonomy, which is how we've rephrased it because, <laughs> you know, we have PDA. <laughs> right. I do have persistent. She definitely had persistent demand for autonomy. But no, they would have looked at it as like, why is she? All we're asking is for her to get dressed and go visit the neighbors. Couldn't keep a job. Sexually deviant. Like the the lens, the pathological lens here is vast. I mean, this is why these are some of the symptoms you might find in the DSM that would classify her as autistic. When I look at this, though, we've got deep work, uh, that monotropism going deep, healthy boundaries, taking care of herself, truth-telling, authenticity, doing what you love, being who you are, creative problem-solving, gender fluidity, and a sweet dose of rebellion. We don't follow any rules. This, that's it. That's why uh, today's episode, Poetry is Autistic, is about my girl, Emily Dickinson. So uh, we don't know if she's autistic for sure. But what do you think? You're the guy who does this for a living. Is this a good representation of our culture? I think it's fantastic. Uh, actually, uh, I get I've been mentioned on TikTok and YouTube uh on a few occasions because I rewrote the DSM criteria back in the day to be uh, affirming rather than to be pathologized. And this pretty much says everything that I've said about re uh, reframing the DSM criteria as a positive thing because she was true to herself. This is the autistic way. This is the way of our people. And uh, it's, 
it's unfortunate that uh, other people would see this as a problem because it it seems like she lived her life to her fullest. And I, I think that's what we all need to do. Hope is a thing with feathers. So thank you for giving us some hope, Emily Dickinson. I love doing this deep dive on her. And when I meet, I don't know if I just met Emily Dickinson, but when I meet someone from autistic culture, it's a lot like when I meet someone who's Italian American. It's like familia, like right away, we know all the same things. We eat all the same food. We know that's amore. Like we have all the same jokes. And that's what it's like for me when I meet uh, someone who's part of autistic culture. It's like, oh, I do that too. I like kissing girls in the woods, maybe not my sister-in-law, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I love uh, these deep dives that we do here because uh, hopefully if you are autistic or love someone autistic, you were able to spot some wonderful autistic traits uh, that's part of their culture too. So that's what I got. So Matt, question of the week for you. Tell me one thing this week you loved about being autistic. I love, uh, I think this goes back to the monotropism because I have been able to, I have made a living studying autistic people, studying our autistic culture, deep diving into it and everything that it's about. And I'm able to share that with people and I am able to exchange special interests due to monotropism. And that is a thing that brings me joy because I love nothing more than to get a, a deep dive swap to learn more about someone else's world. I love that. Deep dive swaps are the best. That is super fun. Uh, I'm glad we got to do that here today. I got to tell you why I love Emily Dickinson. So uh, I am super excited. If you are tuning into this, you know it means a lot if you leave comments, share this with a friend, and help this podcast get discovered. So we'll see you guys back for the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Autistic Culture Podcast. If you like this show, you can help other people find it by taking a few minutes to rate and review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. You can find out more about writing your book with me at differencepress.com. That's difference, D-I-F-F-E-R-E-N-C-E, press, P-R-E-S-S.com. Or getting a psychological evaluation or consult with me at www.mattlowrylpp.com. That's M A T T, Matt Lowry, L O W R Y L P P, as in licensed psychological practitioner.com. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And remember, no one ever changed the world by being like everyone else. Thank you.